Well, it's good to be back with you guys this weekend. And last time I was here with you, we were wrapping up our series called Seven Based on the Seven Deadly Sins. And you may remember that at the end of one of my messages, I talked about something that I was struggling with in my life. And uh, after being at a ministerium, I, I asked a pastor who had been pastoring for over 50 years if I could meet with him. And I went back to his office and I just shared with him what was going on. We never even sat down. He never even offered me a chair. He just put his hands on my shoulder and he says, God, I pray that Mike will passionately pursue you. Amen. And I guess he noticed the befuddled look on my face because he said, you know, I'm looking for a book or a sermon series or something to help me, right? He says, Mike, you need to understand the Christian life is not about you making yourself good. It's about God making you good. And God will make you good as you passionately pursue him. And so we decided, you know, because the feedback I got from that one comment, like, Mike, what is that? How do you actually passionately pursue God? So in this series that we're calling Finding God, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk what the pursuit looks like. And what I want to share with you over the next few weeks is based on a national survey that as a church we were involved in several years ago. Think about it. 525 churches across America, very similar to Hope. Over 180,000 people took this survey, and the purpose of the survey was to help those of us who are in leadership to determine how we're doing in helping people pursue God, or you would probably use the term, become disciples of Jesus. And that's kind of a scary term in our culture because of all the things that are going on. Sometimes it sounds cult-like uh, because of what just happened in New Zealand. We heard that the guy was radicalized. He was a fanatic. And we often attribute those kind of attributes to someone who is a disciple. But this word, this Greek word that's translated disciple was actually used in the first century to describe someone who had the discipline and the maturity to still make it to church on time change Sunday. <laughs> too soon, too soon. That's like not, not what it meant. But if you were here last week, I was sitting listening to Donnie give his message. And Donnie said something and I thought, this really captures what it means to be a disciple. God, Donnie said, you, when you get to the place where I want what God wants more than I want what I want. That's an all-in disciple. Now, our mission statement at Hope is to love people where they are and then encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus. And that just simply means when you walk into the door of one of our campuses, we're just gonna love you regardless of the baggage you bring with you. We don't really care where you've been. We don't really care what you've been up to. We don't care how messy your life is. I mean, we actually prefer messy lives, right? We don't really care. We're gonna love you where you are. But here's the thing. We don't want you to stay where you are. We don't want you to stay with all your mess, all your baggage. We, we, we want to come alongside of you, and we want to encourage you to grow in your relationship with Jesus because we want you to experience the life that Jesus designed for you to experience as one of his disciples, as someone who is passionately pursuing him. And that would be a life of joy and happiness and peace and forgiveness. It would be a life that has meaning and purpose. And that pursuit of getting you from where you are right now with all your mess to where God wants you to be is referred to in the Bible as discipleship. And this is actually the mission that Jesus gave us. It's found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you've been around church for a while, you know that that's referred to as the Great Commission. And I'll just tell you that that's the mission that God put right at the heart of this church from the day it was conceived almost 25 years ago. It's not just my mission. It's not just the mission of the staff. It's not just the mission of the elders. It's our mission together. We're to lock arms together to play our part in the accomplishment of God's mission that he has established 
for his church. So in this series, we're going to talk about how do we do that? How do we love people passionately in a way that they begin to passionately pursue God so that they become what I would say an all-in, I'm all-in, I'm all-in disciple of Jesus Christ. And as I said, to help answer that question, I want to show you some of the findings from this survey uh, of 180,000 people. And basically, it came to this. It said, in every church, like right now, any church in America that's based on the gospel, you're going to find four groups of people that attend every weekend. The first group of people would be those people who are just exploring God. In other words, you're just kind of kicking the tires of Christianity. Uh, maybe that describes you. You're not in a relationship with God. You're considering maybe getting into a relationship with God. And let me just say, if you're here this weekend at any of our campuses and that describes you, you are our honored guest. We are so glad that you're here with us. You know, we have a saying, if you hang around the pond long enough, maybe you'll fall in. We hope that you make that decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. We're just glad you're here, and I'm going to do my best this weekend not to say anything that would offend you so you don't come back next week. Now, the next group we have are those who are beginning with God. In other words, you came to a point in your life where you were exploring God, but then you responded to the gospel. In fact, we could put the cross right here. You got to the point where you realized, wow, I need to be saved. I need a savior. I believe that Jesus Christ was the son of God who came to this earth, who died on the cross, and three days later rose from the dead to verify and validate that he was the one who could take away my sins. And I am trusting him as my savior. So you made this decision. And then the third group would be those who, we'll just put, are close to God. And then these would be people who are God-centered. And then, by the way, there's one more group that's not up here. And that would be a group that we would call people who are far from God. So these are people who aren't even showing up to church on the weekend, okay? This is why we go. This is why we leave after the weekend and go back to the marketplace, back to our neighborhoods, back to the places where we play because see, these people aren't even coming here so we're going there because we wanna share the story of how Jesus Christ has changed our lives. Now you got a great opportunity to help people get from far to God at least into this circle coming up on Easter because statistics tell us that even people who are far from God, two out of three will go to church on Easter if a friend invites them. So I thought it would be so cool. What if all of us wrote down the names of three, four, five people, families that we wanted to invite on Easter? On Christmas Eve, I was so excited. I had 40 neighbors from my neighborhood here for one of our services. But what if we just started praying? Right? And what if we say, then we invested in them. Maybe we had them over for a barbecue or we played golf or something weird like that. And you just got to know them. And you're like, man, you ought to go to church with me on Easter. Two out of three people, we say yes. And you know what? They may make the decision to come back and to start exploring God. But it's the way we could impact 25, 30, 35, 40,000 people at Easter. But everybody that shows up this weekend is gonna fall into one of these four circles. You fall into one of these four circles. But what is interesting is that you can see each one of these four groups in Mark chapter four, which is the parable of the sower. In fact, I noticed something about this parable that I had never noticed before. I used to think it talked about Four groups of people, three groups of people were bad soil. They were bad ground, okay? When the seed fell into their life, which we're gonna seize the word of God, you know, it just wouldn't grow because they just, they were just were bad. But then there were one goody-goody group of people, right? And they represented good soil. They represented good ground. And when the seed of the word of God would come into their life, it would take root and it would grow. But I've, I've learned, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think that this parable in Mark chapter four shows the pursuit 
of God that every one of us are involved in. In fact, we, we, we've all experienced what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 4. Because see, in John chapter 4, Jesus is showing us, and you're going to see this, there's a spiritual battle going on here. Jesus is going to show us how the enemy attacks each one of these groups, preventing us from moving to the next category. Now, let me show you why I say that. If you have your Bible this weekend, Mark chapter 4, or, or the app, if you want to get your phone, your iPad, Mark chapter 4. If not, we're going to put the verses up on the screen. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 1. It says, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat, sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. This was not a security you know, situation like Jesus, like I got to get some space from these people. Jesus understood acoustics. You ever been out on a lake, especially in the morning, and you can talk, that you can hear somebody 100 yards away on their boat just having a little conversation? It's because water travels. Jesus knew that. So he got in the boat. He pushed away from the shore. He began to teach, and it says he taught them many things by parable. By the, by the way, the Greek word for parable, and I know you love Greek words, is parabola. It literally means to throw alongside. In other words, when Jesus told a parable, what he was doing was he was taking a story, an illustration, and he was throwing it alongside a spiritual principle. Donnie does it when he teaches. I do it when I teach. We, there, we, have, we have a biblical principle. And then uh, an illustration is like letting light into the story. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's giving them an illustration to make a point. And then it says in verse 2, he taught them many things by parables. And in teaching said, and, and his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Verse 8, still others fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, does that mean that there were people in the crowd that day that didn't have ears? No, that doesn't mean that at all. Jesus is saying, those who have spiritual ears. In other words, he's saying, I'm talking about spiritual principles, spiritual truths, spiritual things. And, and, the, and you, the person who's just looking at it from a human perspective... A natural perspective. You can't understand spiritual things. And so he goes on in verse 10 of Mark chapter 4. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parable. So in other words, the crowd disperses. Jesus is left with the disciples. And then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? Now notice this phrase. How then will you understand any parable? Now I want you to let that soak in. How, if, you don't know, if you don't understand this, how are you going to understand any parable? So think of it this way. You know, the disciples, they're in the crowd that day. Finally, the crowd leaves. And I can see maybe Peter. Peter usually was the one that did this. You know, looking around, he doesn't see anybody. He was like, Jesus, what the heck was that all about today? I don't get what you're talking about, right? And Jesus responds, if you don't understand this parable, how in the world are you going to understand any of the parables I tell you? You know what that tells me? That tells me there's something important about this parable. There's something special about this parable. And since they don't understand it, if you drop down to verse 14, Jesus begins to explain the parable. He says, the farmer sows the word. The farmer would be God. The word is obviously God's word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. So we're looking at the first group. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. 
Others, like seed sown on rocky places, that would be a hard heart, but they hear the word, and at once they receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. That would be the second group. And we all know people who have fallen in this category. They've accepted Christ. They come out of the gate running a few months. Like, what happened to them? What happened to them? They just kind of fell away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So that would be the third group. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. That's the fourth group. That's the fourth group. Now, let's go back to these circles. You can write across the top of all of these four circles, Growing. Because you are in the constant process as a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, even when you're God-centered, you're still growing. Because this is what you need to know, and we'll talk about this in this series. The minute you stop growing, I promise you this, as a Christian, you're going to start going backwards, right? But we'll talk about that later. But how do you move from group one to group four? Well, you'll notice there's four groups, but it basically requires three moves. you got to go from experiencing God to beginning with God. Then you go from beginning with God to close to God, and then you move from close to God to God-centered. And there's actually three words that describe these, these, three, these three moves. Now think about this. Out of 180,000 people surveyed, the key word that allowed people to move from group one to group two, the word was grace. In other words, the people moved from that moved from exploring the possibility of a relationship with God to beginning a relationship with God, somewhere in here they got to the point where they realized there is absolutely nothing I can do to get into a relationship with God. There is absolutely nothing I can do to earn my salvation. They got to the point where they realized there's only one way I can be saved. There's only one way I can be in a relationship with God and it's by accepting God's grace. In other words, accepting what God has already done for me that I can't do for myself. Now, you got to understand, that is the only way you can be in a relationship with God. In fact, if you're here this weekend and if you're a Christian, you remember, you remember the time when you realized that you were lost. You remember when you realized, wow, I'm separated from God, and you remember you, when you realize that it was only by God's grace, what God has done for us, that we can be saved, that we can be restored, reconciled back into a relationship with God. Now, I'm going to push it a little bit further. If you don't remember that event, if you don't remember coming to a place in your life where you said, wow, I am lost, I need saving, I need a savior, the bad news is that you're probably not a Christian yet. You're probably a very good person, probably a very religious person, and you're just kinda, you just kind of somehow just slipped right in. But if you have never come to the place where you realize, I am lost and there is nothing I can do to get back into a relationship with God on my own, you probably aren't a Christian. Now, the good news is that you can fix it pretty easily. All you have to do is simply transfer your trust or what you're trusting in to get on God's good side, things like your good deeds, things like your good behavior, things like your church attendance. Maybe you went through confirmation. Maybe you were baptized. See, all good things, but again, good things that you do. 
all good things, things you're trusting in, deep down inside you're hoping, I hope it's enough, right? Forget it, okay? It's never gonna be enough. You're not that good. Neither am I. So what do we have to do? We have to stop trusting in what we do and we have to start trusting in what Jesus has already done for us through his death, his burial, and resurrection. I'm telling you, that's the only way you can move from group one to group two. It's grace. By the way, let me just say this. Even when you get to group four, it's still all about grace. I mean, it's finishing the race the way you started the race, see? It's not, thank you, God, for saving me by your grace. I'll take it from here. Mm -mm. It's God, it's, it's as helpless as I was when I was facing life and eternity without any hope. I am still that hopeless. I am still that helpless when it comes to being the person I ought to be. I am still that helpless when it comes to doing the things I ought to do. God, I am just as helpless when it comes to my thought life. I'm just as helpless when it comes to dealing with lust. I'm just as helpless when it comes to dealing with gossip. God, even as a Christian that's been a Christian for 20 years, I am still just as helpless when it comes to dealing with greed in my life. I am weak and I need a savior. It is finishing the race the way you started the race. It begins with grace, it ends with grace. That's how you move from group one to group two. Now, how do people move from group two, beginning with God, to group three, close to God? Well, According to the survey, the people that allowed, the, the, the word that allowed people to move from group two to group three is the word Bible. So let's just write right here. It's the Bible. In fact, in the survey, this statement was repeated over and over again by the people that moved from group two to group three. I strongly agree that the Bible is the word of God and it should dictate every decision of my life. Let me read that again. I strongly agree that the Bible is the word of God and it should dictate every decision of my life. In other words, you get to the place, hey, the Bible isn't just interesting reading. It's not just a good book. The Bible is a book that should dictate every decision I make. You may remember a few months ago, we went through a series called Taking Flight and we talked about our, our lives are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And how do you renew something? How do you renew your mind? The same way you renew your floors. The same way you renew a piece of furniture. You have to take off the old, you have to put on the new. So to have our minds renewed, we have to identify the lies that have shaped our behavior and our attitude before Christ. Many of these things we learn from our family. Much of it we learn from culture. Some of it we even get from bad religion, right? But we have to identify those lies. We have to remove those lies and we have to replace them with the truth, the principles, the precepts of God's word. And Jesus said in John chapter eight, verse 32, when you do that, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. But here's the principle. The principle simply is this. When I begin to see as God sees, I'll begin to do as God says. In other words, when I begin to study God's word and I begin to understand why God made this principle, why he made this truth, why he made this rule, why he made this law, I will begin to do as God says. See, that's when you know you've moved from group two to group three. When you come across a passage that says, if you want to be great, serve. You find a place to serve. When you read a passage about if you want to be generous, you got to start giving your life away. You figure out a way to give. When you read that you're supposed to forgive as you've been forgiven, that's the way you start forgiving. If you see that you're supposed to live a morally pure life, you bring your life into alignment and you begin to live a morally pure life. But your goal is to bring your attitudes, your behavior in alignment with God's word. And what word did 180,000 people survey use to describe individuals that moved from group three, close to God, to group four, God-centered. Giving. 
giving. In other words, these people said, you know what? I'm not on this earth just for me. I want to give my life away. I want to give my time. I want to give my talents. I want to give my resources to the kingdom of God. So it isn't just about giving money. Although, let me say this. It does include your money. And I know what some of you are thinking. I knew it was just a matter of time before he was going to try to get my money, right? First of all, let me say, I don't do any, I don't ask you to do anything that I don't do. I more than tithe the Hope Community Church, which really means I pay my own salary. How weird is that? But anyway, right, right. Here's the other thing. I am really proud as the pastor of Hope Community Church, how we use the money that you give to invest back our community to the world to make a difference in the kingdom of God. Hey, we're an open book. I'm okay with that stuff. But here's what I want you to understand. Jesus taught more about the subject of giving, about how you use your money, than any other subject in the Bible. More than he talked about heaven, more than he talked about hell, more than he talked about prayer. In fact, if you study the Bible at all, guess what? Eventually, you're going to have to come to terms with how you handle your money. I'll give you an example. The word believe is used in the Bible. That's a big word, 272 times. Pray, is that important? Prayer is mentioned in the Bible 371 times. How about love? Oh, we love love, right? 714 times. Give, 2,162 times. It's a big deal. Do you know why? Do you know why Jesus had more to say about giving than any other topic? See, he talked a lot about money matters because he knows us and he knows our money matters, right? He knew it could be the one thing that could prevent us from putting God first, preeminent in our lives. Kind of reminds me of the pastor was preaching one weekend. He's trying to get his church all jacked up, you know. He said, man, if we're going to grow and be the church God wants us to be, we got to crawl. And the people said, let it crawl, brother. Let it crawl. And he said, if we're going to be the church God wants us to be, we're going to have to run. And they said, let it run, brother. Let it run. And he said, if we're going to be the church God wants us to be, we got to soar. And they let it soar, brother. Let it soar. And he said, if we're going to be the church God wants us to be, we got to give. And it was quiet. And one lady said, let it crawl, brother. Let it crawl. That's right. It's a big deal, right? But here's the thing. I'm just going to be honest with you. Money prevents most Christians from ever experiencing the joy of the God-centered life. And that's why God, Jesus had so much to say about it. He knew that. I got this, I got this email the other day. It's from a lady. <clears throat> she says, just listen to this. But just, it just, it's not about amount. It's about attitude, right? She said, I'm living as a roommate, working as a CNA home care aide. First job I've had in 25 years. Widow for seven years to my husband who had early onset Alzheimer. I took care of him for seven years. Was very sick after he died. Very much afraid to be single. I have to figure out life on my own and work and all. I've come a long way by God's grace. God's still working on me and testing me. But, but notice this. He is becoming my number one focus more and more every day. She says, I struggle with chronic illness. Fatigue is always an issue. I haven't had energy to do much of anything but work for a while. I try to go to church. I struggle to go to church and events alone. I've invited one or two people to go with me, but I'm just too exhausted to go usually. So I listen to your messages. God convicted me to give 19% of my gross income away a while ago. Now he wants me to add $10 a month as an offering. This is what she said. I want to always remember that God is my source. Everything I am and have is his.
See, it's not about amount. It's, it's about attitude. And I would say the best thing you could probably do is, is start somehow, whether you give it to hope or somewhere else, start giving systematically. And I, I think God set the standard at 10%. Maybe you can only do two and go to four or go to five. But, but I gotta, you got to start somewhere if you ever hope to get to this place in life. Let me just give you an analogy to think about as you, as you move through these circles to the pursuit of God-centeredness. Think of it in terms of a relationship. For, for example, people that are exploring God, they've never met him. They don't talk to him because they don't know him. They know of him, but they don't know him. People that are beginning with God have met, and now he's a friend, you know. He's somebody they're getting to know. They talk to him a little. They don't talk to him often, but they talk to him a little bit, but they're just getting to know him. When you get to the third category close to God, he's your best friend. He's the person you go to with bad news. You talk to him every day. You talk to him throughout the day. He's your best friend. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, Mike, what is God-centered? I mean, that sounds you know, pretty tight, right? And this is the best analogy I could think of. And it kind of breaks down a little bit because we don't kind of have the attitude toward marriage that probably we should have toward marriage. But when you're God-centered, God is like the person that you've been married to for 40 years and you would lay your life down for. See, it's the person that's the love of your life. It's, it's your soulmate. It's the person that you will never leave regardless of what they do. You're committed to the end, see. Because when you're God-centered, everything in your life revolves around God. And if God says, give $10 more a month, you give $10 more a month, right? But that's where God, that's where he wants to take all of us. Because, see, this is where you find true joy. This is where you find the abundant life that Jesus talked about. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, that you might have it to the full. This is where we bear fruit 30, 60, 100 times in our lives. Now, that's the pursuit. That's the pursuit. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. But I want to spend a few minutes before I wrap it up talking about people that are exploring God. And this is an important category because if you're listening, you're either exploring God or I promise you, you know someone who is exploring God. So let's quickly look at the parable. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this. Mark 4, verse 14, Jesus says, the farmer, again, God sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes. Again, you're going to see over the next few weeks as I break down this parable, this is a spiritual battle. Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. By the way, Satan's number one job is to steal the word of God from your heart. Understand, as soon as you hear it, he wants to get it out of your heart. He wants to get it out of your mind because if it's in your heart, if it's in your mind, if it takes root, I'm promising you this, it is going to change your life. That's why Paul, when he wrote to the church at Corinth, said this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, the word means trickery, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And you may read that verse and sound, see, that, that just kind of sounds simple and meaningless. That is, without a doubt, one of the most profound verses in the entire Bible on spiritual warfare. It tells us right there, Satan's battle is for our mind. For example, some of you right now, Satan is trying to prevent you from hearing what I'm saying. I mean, I, I got this incredible truth that I'm sharing with you. You know what some of you are thinking? Did I leave the iron on? You ever done that? Hey, Billy's got a soccer game this weekend. Did I wash Billy's uniform? Is Mike going to let us out in time to get to the Olive Garden and beat the Methodists? I mean, you know, all these, all these things are going wrong, right, right, right. 
Or, you know, I'll give you a principle, or Donnie, whoever's teaching will give you a principle. And you're like, I don't know if I agree with that, right? I don't know. If, it's right there in the Bible. I don't know if I agree with that. Oh, you know what? I don't like the way he said that. I get that a lot. See? In fact, I can, I can get 35 minutes of biblical truth, say one word people don't like. I can get a six-page email just wearing me out. Just so you know, that's Satan. That's Satan. I'm telling you. He, you just get here. White noise. You hear one word. White noise. You miss the entire. He's being very, very subtle. But you know what he's doing? He's keeping you from hearing the word. He's keeping you from hearing the real message. And it's because he knows, man, if it takes root, it's going to change your life. By the way, this parable is also found in Matthew chapter 13. It's also found in Luke chapter 8. Just so you know, there are four gospels. Three are called synoptic gospels, which means each are basically tell the same stories of Jesus, but from three different perspectives, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We can talk about that some other time. But let me read these verses from Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verse 19, this is what the verse says. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, there he is, comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. This is the seed sown along the path. In other words, Satan does not want you to understand and hear God's word. Here, here's what it says in, in Luke 8, 12. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So let me just say this. For those of you here this weekend at any of our campuses that are exploring God, I want to share with you three things that Satan doesn't want you to hear. And he doesn't want you to hear it because he doesn't want you to believe it. And it's going to be very, very brief because it's not complicated. Here's the first thing. Salvation isn't based on what you do. I promise you Satan doesn't want you to hear that. And it's because if you hear it, you're going to believe it. And if you believe it, you're, you're going to become a Christian. You're going to become a follower of Jesus Christ. You're going to become a disciple. I mean, think about this. Once you understand that Christianity, salvation, is not based on what you do. Once you understand it's not even based on how good you can be. Why wouldn't you get saved? Why wouldn't you become a Christian? First of all, you get to experience the life that God designed for you to, to by the way, it's the life you really want to. And second, you have the assurance that when you die, you spend all eternity in a place called heaven with a loving God who is head over heels in love with you. I mean, once you understand that, why wouldn't you want that? Paul said this in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I don't care where you are in your walk with God, you should memorize that verse. Because it constantly reminds us salvation is not based on what you do. Satan doesn't want you to know this. Here's the second thing Satan doesn't want you to hear. Salvation is a free gift. It's a free gift. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What that means is simply this. Jesus paid for all your sins with his death on the cross. You don't owe anything. All you have to do is sign on. I mean, that's it. So salvation isn't based on what you do. Second, salvation is a free gift. Here's the third thing Satan doesn't want you to hear. It's easy to receive the gift of salvation. When Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he said this in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Boom. Drop the mic. I mean, you can't make it any easier than that. Think about it. God took the most complicated issue known to mankind. How can a sinful person be in a relationship with the perfect holy God 
God took that issue and made it a simple issue. He said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, Jesus has done all the work. All you have to do is accept what he's already done for you. I was at the gym working out one day, and uh, I was doing dips. I remember because it hurts. But uh, while I was up doing dips, uh, a guy, a friend of mine, he walked up, and he had been a friend at the gym. He said, okay, Mike, I know you're a big shot minister. Here's a question for you. And, and I can still hear him asking me. He says, can somebody know without a doubt that when they die, they can go to heaven? And I'm not big on, oh, let me tell you what the Bible, you know, I, I'm not like that. I said, well, you know, that's what the Bible teaches, so I'm going to go with that. And I got down, finished doing the dips. And he said, well, how do you know that? And I said, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He said, hmm. I said, you ought to come to church. Oh, I go to this church on Sunday with the family and kids sleep. I said, well, you ought to just come on Saturday night. Just check it out. A few weeks later, he came, and I shared the gospel that week. And when I was finished, I said, man, if you would like to receive the gift of salvation, just hang around. And it was that night that he accepted Christ as his Savior. See, I'm telling you, it's that easy. It's that easy. If you believe, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, why wouldn't you do that? I, I, don't, I don't understand. Why, I mean, to, you are never in this lifetime going to get a better offer than abundant life now and guaranteed eternity in heaven. Why wouldn't you accept that? I want to give you a chance if you have it. Let's bow our heads. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to share a prayer with you. And if you just pray this prayer, there's nothing magical about this prayer. But I'm telling you, if, if this comes from your heart to God, he's going to save you. You can say this in your heart. God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that my sin has separated me from you. God, I need saving. And I believe that Jesus, your son, came to be my savior and I believe he died on the cross and I believe he rose from the dead to verify that he is the one who can take away my sin I ask you to forgive me I transfer my trust from what I've been trusting in to what you've already done for me through your son Jesus Christ Father I thank you for receiving me into your family Father, we're told in Luke that when one sinner repents, that there's a party in heaven. And I would imagine right now that the angels are rejoicing and there are banners with the names of people that are sitting here and sitting in Apex, in Morrisville, wherever, online, who realize just how simple you made it to be saved to be restored back into a relationship with you. And Father, I pray that as they believe in their heart, that they would also profess, share with someone, I made this decision. I made this decision. 
And somehow they would let us know that so we could come alongside and walk on this journey as we all together hold hands to become centered in you, to be all in, so that you can use our lives to, to reap 30, 60, sometimes maybe even 100-fold. God, I can't wait to see what you are going to do because we believe.